Community Matters, Saturdays, 95.3 WBCK, and anytime at BattleCreekPodcast.com. Richard Pyatt here, made possible our program by the folks at Lakeview Ford Lincoln. As you know, we've talked on many occasions from many different angles about the proposed Blue Oval battery plant in Marshall. One of the things we've heard more recently, and, and perhaps all along, are concerns about environmental situations like fire and that sort of thing. What if that were to happen at a facility of this size with this kind of material in it? So we thought we would ask Michael McClear to come and talk to us, a firefighter and fire safety educator with the organization Escape in Southwest Michigan. By the way, Michael is also a fire safety trainer among firefighters and follows uh, the NFPA and other standards in doing so. Michael, welcome back. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. So when we talk about electric vehicle batteries like this in a plant like Blue Oval, if we just speak generally, when you hear about that combination from a firefighter standpoint, what are some of the first things that you're concerned with? Well, one of the things that our fire service brothers and sisters are staying abreast of is this technology is emerging faster than what we really have all of the answers. So we're actively engaged, as you mentioned, with the National Fire Protection Association, our fire service leading organizations across the state and across the country continue to work with the auto manufacturers because we haven't had the consistency on every vehicle is using the same type of battery or when we do have a battery fire on the roadway or potentially in one of these facilities, we need to make sure we use the correct strategies and tactics to mitigate that emergency situation. Think of it this way. Whenever a building is being built, your local fire departments, your local fire service are actively involved in that building process with building officials, with elected officials, with state officials, and so forth. And we really look at the impact that it's going to have on the local community. Should that facility burn down, what are we going to do and what type of hazards are we going to encounter? One thing I will share with you, the batteries themselves, when they're not damaged, are fairly safe. It's when we get into a situation where those batteries are involved in a roadway incident where someone's been in a motor vehicle crash, we are seeing a lot of information coming back and a lot of our emergency responders are reporting that these batteries can catch fire minutes, hours, or even weeks after the original emergency took place. And that's why we're seeing news stories about someone takes their electric vehicle that was in a crash maybe two or three weeks ago, and every night they park it in their vehicle, or in their garage rather, the vehicle in the garage. It catches the garage on fire that's attached to the house, and it catches the house on fire and it burns down. So we have to still understand that these vehicles, when they go into a thermal runaway mode, which is the battery shorts out, because it was damaged, it poses some real hazards. But in the facilities, typically when we're building a facility, our fire service professionals will be actively engaged and we'll bring, the chiefs will bring the fire department members on site to that facility as it's going up. Because we always look at when something is built, I hate to say it, but we have to look at all the strategies and tactics, should it burn down? 
And what are some of the advantages that the, the building has as far as fire alarm systems, fire suppression systems to contain that fire? And then where are any um, hazardous chemicals going to go? And this plant isn't any different than, say, a chemical plant. We're going to have to have containment. It won't run into the river. It won't run into the sewer system. Those days are long gone. Uh, communities have gotten much smarter, and we do have safeguards in place so that we can make sure we have containment so that should a battery catch fire and those caustic chemicals leak out, there's got to be some type of containment system, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that is certainly one of the concerns that I've heard expressed is uh, the rivers nearby, you know, inhabitants are nearby. And so these are uh, all concerns that um, that come up when we're talking about a facility like this. And and you have taken the, I would say, appropriate angle of talking about the batteries themselves and and the relative safety of them when they're not damaged and so on. But let's, you know, just imagine that somehow uh, a pile of paper catches fire in, in this plant and it wasn't even the battery that caused it. But now there's an event going on that might ignite those, uh, that they can originate those fires in a number of ways, right? They could, but fortunately with buildings of this size, many times fire suppression equipment is a requirement. So sprinklers, for example, may be required. And if that incipient stage fire, that beginning stage fire that's caused by paper catches fire, that local sprinkler head will put that fire out. Now, should something happen where the system is offline, maybe somebody's servicing it or what have you, many communities require a fire watch. So that fire watch puts a trained and certified firefighter on location anytime that fire alarm system or that suppression system is offline, and they are just doing that. They're walking the facility and they're watching for any hazards can't be any better than that to have a trained firefighter right on location. So that many times we utilize that as well. Should a fire occur, what we typically would do is when we arrive on location, uh, our firefighters receive that notification from a fire alarm system that there's been uh, some type of an event. We respond and that size of a facility is going to have what we call probably an initial aid response. We're going to have multiple departments responding. If we don't need them, Richard, we can always turn them back. But what we want to do initially is we want to have enough personnel and enough fire apparatus there should it be a real event, a real emergency. Sometimes alarm systems will malfunction. Sometimes they will go off inadvertently and it ends up not being anything. But we won't always treat it like it is a big event. And that's where after that facility is built, as it's being built, we look and we alter those strategies and tactics and say, okay, now that everything's in there, we need all of our fire department members to understand here's the risks, here's the benefits, here's what we need to do, here's what our strategies and tactics are going to be for our first due companies, those first pieces of fire apparatus that arrive on location. Uh, our incident commander will actually do a 360-degree walk around, walk around the entire portion of the building. And one of the nice things that we have now in the fire service and emergency services, Richard, is drones. So if we have a drone available within our department, we could actually fly that drone and get that visual overview immediately on what's going on. 
What is our color of smoke? Are we seeing smoke exit the building? That's going to give us a better idea of how quickly that fire is spreading. Color of smoke is something we train firefighters on all the time. Each different colors mean advancement of that fire situation. And once that 360 degree walk around is done, either if it's from the air or if it's done on the ground, then our incident commander, usually the fire chief or his or her designee, can then go ahead and determine the appropriate strategies and tactics for making sure life safety is the top priority. We wanna make sure everybody's evacuated. And then property conservation is our next strategy. And when we do have a hazardous material situation, which this type of plant would be, we have booms, we have barriers, we have hazardous material socks that we can put down to contain the water runoff so that it doesn't go into the nearby river. It doesn't go into a watershed or things of that nature. Those are all some of the things that your Michigan Fire Service and the fire service across the country are very equipped to be able to do and be able to mitigate that risk. Okay. You talked about fire suppression. I'm curious about that. So sprinklers, for example, I mean, you know, to a lay person like me, you you look up at those little sprinkler heads and you say, oh, well, that's similar to what's on my front lawn or something. And you say, how could that saturate a, an advancing fire? How much water goes through those suckers? <laughs> Quite a bit. And if it's a high risk hazard like this facility would be, we want to make sure we get large amounts of water on that fire source as quickly as possible. And one thing that I want to clear up the myth and misconception for the audience is many times we see in the movies when one sprinkler head on the ceiling goes off, they all go off. That's not the way it works. They're heat activated and the sprinkler head that's closest to the source of the fire will actually activate first. Other heads will activate as that fire progresses, but what the sprinkler system is designed to do is to allow the occupants of a structure, whether it's an apartment building, whether it's a manufacturing facility like this, whether it's your own home. I just remodeled here on our farm, and in the, the building that we remodeled and put in living quarters, it's a barn that's built in 1855. We put a sprinkler system in. It's tied into our well because I want to make sure that my family's protected and they're so cost effective nowadays. They don't do the water damage that you see in the Hollywood and the movies and things like that. But what it will do is it will contain that fire. Uh, some other high risk areas may use foam. Now there's been a big negative um, outcry on the PFOS and foam, but we've retired that out of the fire service. And most of the fire departments, we've gotten rid of that toxic foam that causes the PFOS and can cause cancer and other health issues. And we're now starting to see manufacturers replace it with other types of foam. So that may be an option. Uh, in a restaurant, for example, where we have the fast food frying, they have a suppression system that will actually contain a grease fire. Because the worst thing we can do is put water on a grease fire and just make that grease spread every place. So the systems are designed based on the level of risk, based on the occupancy, and what that manufacturing facility is actually building, making, and manufacturing and distributing. Are there any concerns? I'm sure there are, but let's just ask, are there any concerns about this kind of material? That is to say, these kind of batteries that would be built in a plant like Blue Oval in terms of flammability. You talked about the overall purview on that being 
has a view like a uh, like a chemical plant or a hazardous material kind of situation. How do you view that just overall? These kinds of materials come in contact with fire. We've got our job cut out for us, right? We do. But what companies are going to do, and Ford does an excellent job as well as the, the manufacturers that I've worked with when I do health and safety training. When they hire employees, they have integral training plans and integral training methods that they utilize so that all people that are hired understand the inherent risks. And they have good policies and procedures in place. One thing I can share with you is batteries have been made for years. We've had batteries in our vehicles. We just haven't had a battery that's powered the entire vehicle. So now our battery banks have to be bigger. The whole bottom of the vehicle is built with battery banks. One of the things many of us grew up with, you and I and others, is we always knew that there was caustic acid in a battery. So we have to be very careful when we're around any type of battery, because if you get that acid on you or in your eyes, it's going to cause a chemical burn. Myosha has very strict requirements for making sure under right, what used to be known right to understand is now, uh, excuse me, right to know, used to be known as right to know. And now it's right to understand. We want to make sure workers in the workplace understand the inherent risks and what they can do to use personal protective equipment. So that'll be part of that training process for any manufacturer is making sure employees have the personal protective equipment when they're dealing with this, eye protection, face protection, gloves, outerwear, things of that nature that can help keep them safe. And then no open flame, because obviously we don't want sparks, we don't want open flames, so that would be no smoking at the work area, things of that nature. Those are just basic common sense things, but those I'm sure will be part of an overall safety plan. And then making sure that should an emergency take place, everyone knows their role and responsibility as part of the evacuation plan. Everyone knows their role and responsibility as far as fighting the fire, if they're able to do so. And they'll even be taught how big or how small of a fire that they could actually utilize, maybe a fire extinguisher on for that incipient or beginning stage fire, when it continues to grow, then they're going to want to make sure that the trained professionals actually mitigate that emergency situation. But if it's a battery, a fire extinguisher, an ABC multi-purpose fire extinguisher may put out that fire or eliminate that hazard. But depending on, again, the chemicals that are involved and safety data sheets now since 2015 uh, we used to call them material safety data sheets. They have a clear marking now, and section four is our first aid procedure. So on safety data sheets, there's clear sections on what are the chemical ingredients, what's the flammability. That's all part of what an employer is responsible to educate employees in right to understand and through MyOSHA and so forth. And MyOSHA has their consultation, education, and training division where they can provide free training for any employer out there, even those that may be listening in on this particular interview at no charge. That's part of our tax dollars and things like that. So think of it this way. There's experts out there that we can brainstorm best practices together, our fire and emergency services, MyOSHA the federal officials, and so forth, so that we can prevent a tragedy from happening. But should it occur, 
everyone's going to be best prepared to know how to mitigate that emergency situation, minimizing the environmental or other impact on the community. Yeah, you interestingly raise a point that I was going to get to, and that has to do with training. So if we look at Marshall and Marshall Township, uh, we presume that the fire professionals there are uh, participating in ongoing training, but now this kind of facility would require them to up their game, wouldn't it, on uh, on what they know and, and how to handle uh, a fire in this kind of a facility. And so that would take place, would have to, right? Absolutely. And the great news is the big three and all the automotive manufacturers are, are partnering with the National Fire Protection Association to offer very robust and dynamic training, both in person and online, so we can even reach our on-call firefighters who may be working a second or third job, and they may not be working at the fire station from 8 until 5 or 9 until 4 or whatever it happens to be. So we've tried to look at different ways to be able to provide the outreach, quantitative and qualitative education, so that we can make sure everyone has those best practices, and then it's up to the local fire department to determine, again, the risks in their community and what type of training they need. Much of this training is free of charge. So it's just a matter of reaching out and connecting needs and resources together, which is great. Are there general certification and training requirements that firefighters have to keep up with? Continuous education? Great question, Richard. Uh, here in Michigan, firefighters, if they're on an on-call department, are required to have Firefighter 1 within 24 months of hire. And if they're on a career department, a fully paid department, full-time department, they're required to have Firefighter 1 and 2 within 12 months of hire, within one year. So it, just recently, uh, the laws did change, and it does require our firefighters to have 12 hours of training every year. But they were required to do that prior to some changes in the laws because MIOSHA has a section called Part 74, which clearly identifies what the firefighters need and what type of hazards that they need to be trained. The keywords here, train commensurate to their duties. Mm -hmm. And if there's an injury or a death, like happened this winter in Pawpaw, then we need to make sure that we have good training records. And by the way, everything is going well. I just was at a banquet with them last night. They're doing well. But those types of situations, when they occur, it does bring the officials in to make sure, hey, was there anything that could have been done to prevent the emergency? Do we have everybody trained commensary to the duties? Things of that nature. So I want to make that clear that, yes, we do now require paid on call volunteer or career firefighters to have levels of training and ongoing training. And it's even more if they run emergency medical services, medical aid calls. When we're talking about these high voltage lithium ion and other batteries that are going to power vehicles, what's the overall concern there with them once they're exposed to an open flame? Does it accelerate that? I mean, the presumption is it does, but is it like throwing gasoline on a fire or what happens? Well, what we are seeing, the more cells that go into the thermal runaway, the more cells that short out, the bigger the fire becomes. Okay. And from a fire fighting standpoint, I'll go back to the vehicle fire. If we have that battery that's on fire and we're in a roadway, one of the things that we're limited to is a water source, especially if it's an interstate highway, because we don't have a hydrant on the highways. Mm -hmm. And we have to get more tankers and more water source there. And what we've been trained so far is large amounts of water, copious amounts of water to cool the battery. That's our key 
is cooling the battery stops that thermal runaway. It stops the rest of the cells from shorting out. And uh, we, we have 80 to 85% of our fire departments here in the state of Michigan are roughly volunteer paid on call. So they don't have a full-time staff and they may not have a large number of apparatus. Now, some departments do, and this is part of what they work into their plan. Should we have an emergency on Interstate 94 or 194, what are we going to do? How are we going to be able to put that fire out? How are we going to be able to mitigate that emergency? And those are all things that they'll look at even at the plant itself. The other concern is getting that caustic chemical on our turnout gear. It could damage the turnout gear, the protective gear that our firefighters wear. And that caustic chemical, you know, can eat through regular clothing, things of that nature. So uh, we may see some changes in our personal protective equipment as more and more of these technologies become a standard of life as we go forward. Yeah, the PPE stuff, that's governed by NFPA, or at least they have the standards on that, right? It is, yes. And uh, we did find, unfortunately, that some of our personal protective equipment actually has PFOS in it as, as well because uh -huh. of the water repelling. Yes. So now we're dealing with that, that not only do we have to be concerned with the foam, but also our personal protective equipment and then touching the eyes, the mucous membranes, things like that. So what we're encouraging all of our members to do is make sure when they're done with any type of these fires that they properly decontaminate. They take a shower because when we're working, our pores open up. And that's an excellent way for these contaminants to get further into our body. And we're seeing different forms of cancer in our members decades later. Mm -hmm. So we want to encourage our younger, newer members getting into the fire service to really take it seriously, use their personal protective equipment that's issued. And the Blue Oval plant or any of the plants, they'll issue personal protective equipment and training to the employees that are hired there. So they'll know exactly what to do to stay safe, but also what to do should an emergency take place. So you talked about the idea that uh, copious amounts of water are needed to cool the batteries down, maybe more than you would would deal with in a traditional kind of, of vehicle fire, let's say. And you're able to mitigate the runoff even in the middle of a highway somewhere because you don't want that stuff running down into the sewer, right? Exactly, exactly. So what a lot of the incident commanders will do is they'll set up strategic booms so it could go into the median, it could go into an area that's not going into uh, drainage, and that way if in fact they can contain it, then uh, an environmental company could come in and remove that soil. And from time to time when we're driving on the highways, we see that a tanker or a tractor trailer that is overturned and just the little bit of diesel fuel from their tanks on the side of their semi leaked out and the Michigan Department of Transportation uh, will get an environmental company in there and they'll dig out the soil. You'll see all the grass is gone. That's the reason why. They want to dig down far enough and we have test equipment that we can test the soil to see how far it's actually penetrated in. The good news is clay, which we have a lot of in this area, in this region, contains and doesn't allow these contaminants to soak in. So we're able to contain it from that perspective. A lot different when we're down in Florida where there's a lot of sand or near the lakeshore, things of that nature. I see. Well, it's interesting uh, just talking about the plant idea, but as you've talked about many times, the notion of fighting a vehicle fire in an EV. And uh, one thing we know, and I've learned it because I've been driving one for the last month or so, 
There's a lot of immediate torque. And uh, as you say, we've never had a battery that powers the whole car before. Now we do. Sometimes when you're fighting those fires, there's concern about the batteries as they're burning, activating the 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 actual motor and moving the car in the midst of trying to contain that. We have seen that happen. I was at a meeting earlier this year in Massachusetts. Many of the members of the Massachusetts Fire Service, where I served for 18 years, talked about they've had vehicles just automatically start up. And even before they were able to get their crews in place, and I remember one department told me the vehicle ended up driving over an embankment and downwards and through a fence. And when the crews got down to it, everybody was out of the vehicle. But when the crews got down there, the vehicle wheels were still going at full oh speed. My. Oh, and my. what I'm understanding, I, I haven't ridden in one yet, but you probably can speak to this. You're from zero to 60 instantly. There's no build up to where you've got six seconds, eight seconds, things like that. And that's what they found immediately. The vehicle shorted out somehow and it went into gear. And a lot of these uh, devices and actually the way we enter the vehicles, it's all electronic. There's no door handles, things Correct. of that nature in some of these. So if we have a failure of the electrical system, how do our emergency responders get in there? And that's what we continue to train on. Mm -hmm. So we may have to block off the vehicle. We may need to get the vehicle off the ground because even blocks with some of the torque, it could go over those locks and things of that nature. So our emergency responders are aware of it and we continue to stress safety is the top priority. Make sure everybody gets out of that vehicle, gets away from the vehicle. That's one of the first things that people can do. So in training for all of this, are there specific protocols that are being developed just to address this kind of uh, potential fire? Absolutely, yes. So the National Fire Protection Association is really the leading nonprofit organization working with the Environmental Health and uh, Safety and, and uh, CPSC and some of the other organizations that are out there to be able to determine what people can do to be able to keep themselves safe and also what these facilities can do and what standards and guidelines need to be in place so that we are able to prevent, hopefully, the fires or mitigate the emergency once it takes place. Those are going to be some key components as we go forward, certainly. All right. And we should mention before you go that Escape is West Michigan-based fire safety organization. You do a lot of educating of everyday citizens right here in our area, right? We do. We go out and we work with local fire departments. We work with community schools. We do outreach with older adults. We promote fire and life safety education. ESCAPE stands for education, showing children and adults procedures for evacuations. We had to kind of scale back during COVID, but fortunately with virtual technology like Zoom and some of the other platforms, we were able to still connect with our community and we're able to reach that message to teach people what they can do to prevent a home fire. Our homes are built uh, differently. Our, our families uh, many times may not be at home at the same time, and we need to make sure we have those working smoke alarms, carbon monoxide alarms, and those well-planned out escape plans so that we have two ways out. One way could be a door, second way out could be a window, and make sure we stay outside. This year's theme for Fire Prevention Week is cooking safety. So we're going to be focusing on stand by your pan because unattended cooking is the leading cause of home fires, and we want to make sure we prevent the fire from taking place in the first place. 
If folks are interested in maybe having you come by or uh, virtually visit to talk about fire safety, all you have to do is look at the website and reach out, escapeinc.org, and we'll link that in the show notes for this episode at battlecreekpodcast.com. Michael McClear, Escape, we always appreciate your insights and uh, information. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Have a great day.